The boy was following her again. She ignored him, not out of malice, but because it felt as if she could hardly see him anyway. Just vague impressions of a small grey face in small grey clothes, a grey smudge against a grey landscape. A thin layer of ash still covered everything, even a week later. Nothing a good rain wouldn't wash away, but it hadn't rained, and so the ash lingered as a reminder somehow more effective, more embarrassing than the charred buildings and the ransacked buildings and the former buildings. It seemed to be the ash that made everyone unwilling to make eye contact, as if it not only stuck to your clothes and skin, but to your mood as well. She kept her eyes on the pavement as she followed a path through the ash made by a hundred other furtive feet. Every once in a while, she heard the boy scurrying after her from hiding place to place, but he remained on the edge of her awareness, just beyond the peripheral. She kept walking. It was hard for her to remember much of the last week, and what she did came in surprising instances rather than a single narrative that connected the days. After the moment had passed, a great surprised quiet had descended. The rioting faded within minutes as rioters looked at their hands and seemed to wonder, as if for the first time, why they were holding bricks. The buildings burned for days after. Some were still burning now, even though the fire brigades had seemed to be the only thing that never stopped working, even at the climactic moment. Well, television too, obviously, though the anchorman who had taken his last moments to confess his adultery had yet to return to air. She was aware of all these things as if from behind a scrim, a veil on the world. And this was OK too, because if she put energy into remembering the wrong things would come back. The way they had talked together on the hospital bed until his voice fell silent. The way she held him until he grew cold and for a long time after. The way she had walked home in a daze through the smoky fog that draped the city, finding her house still standing, though burgled, and with an office chair that didn't belong to her thrown through the front window. Her electricity still hadn't been restored, even now, though the high street had power again, banks and capitalism needing it the most. But a truck with a loud speaker had driven past this morning, giving details of a food bank at a church down past the tube station. She didn't remember deciding to go, but almost everything in the kitchen had been stolen by hoarders, and she had been living off things not even the desperate would steal. Cans of chilli beans, packets of cake mix. And so here she was, walking through a cold, ash-filtered morning, so that decision must have been taken somewhere. Behind her, moving from postbox to shrubbery, the boy followed. It had taken her a while to be sure she wasn't imagining him as more than just a hidden rustling in the closets of the spare bedroom or tiptoes as loud as a draught horse in the night to get food from the kitchen. When she decided he was real, she left him to the upstairs, which was where he seemed to prefer to be. She thought she might recognise him, perhaps from down the road where many of the houses, and presumably the families, hadn't been so lucky. But she couldn't be sure, 
and could never see him clearly enough to ask. He was eight or ten, maybe. They'd never had children of their own, and that exact span between toddler and teenager remained a bit of a mystery to her. He always seemed to be gripping something hidden in his hand, a memento, perhaps, from whatever terrible mystery he'd fled from to her house. They had so far simply coexisted, wild animals of different species watchfully sharing the same glen. Everything was bleached and dull as she walked, her clothes, her hands, even her thoughts, as if colour was one of the many casualties of the almost apocalypse. She passed a closed shoe shop that seemed to have escaped undamaged. Someone had written, We have only ourselves to blame, across the glass. Don't we always, she thought. She'd had to leave him there at the hospital, a thought she couldn't press too closely. The injured and the sick had returned before the doctors did, and she had heard them in the floors below, breaking open cabinets, seeking whatever relief they could muster. They would stop at the doorway to his room, then keep moving down the corridor, not wishing to intrude. For some reason, this brutal pity proved too much to bear, and she tucked him up in his sheets, though she doubted this memory, thinking it might only be something she had wanted to do, and left somehow returning to their house, now haunted by this ghost of a boy. She turned towards the church and saw how far the queue for the food bank stretched. It was quiet and orderly. She would have expected nothing less from this, her adopted country, and she took her place at the end. She kept her eyes down so that the two men in front of her wouldn't try to strike up a conversation. They didn't and in fact they seemed to be in the silence that follows a disagreement. One finally said to the other, I mean, what are we supposed to do? It's like hanging around the theatre after the lights come up. The other didn't answer. The line moved slowly, snaking its way into the church, and she could see people exiting at the other side, clutching bags of food to their chests, the same stunned look on everyone's face. This was the church where they voted, she realised, whenever there was an election. She wondered if and when those might ever happen again. Have some faith in your fellow apes, she heard his voice say, that loving smile that seemed permanently there. My fellow apes caused this whole mess, she said, only discovering she'd said it out loud when the two men turned to look at her. The air suddenly filled with a chorus of chirruping, and the line broke into laughter as it realised the sound was coming from its pockets. Hands reached into coats and removed mobile phones, newly back to life, and beeping urgently with all the messages piled up from the impossible preceding week. At least... For those who'd been able to charge their phones, which included neither her nor the men in front of her. Who would she want to hear from anyway, besides him? Still, a giddy little wave of relief swept the pavement. Chatter rising, voices lifting, voices at last being given a reason to lift. Slightly more buoyant 
The lion moved forward. It's nothing fancy, the man at the food bank said once she'd finally found her way inside. He handed her a white plastic bag. But this chocolate... He shrugged. Who knows why? She exited at the back, feeling a new wind tousle her hair. She found herself looking this way and that until she saw the boy waiting by a rubbish bin, watching for her, then turning away as if he wasn't. Once she was past him, she reached into her bag and removed the chocolate bar from among the two apples, the small loaf of bread, the even smaller carton of long-life milk and box of tea bags the food bank had provided. She stopped, pretending she'd been distracted by a passing thought, and placed the chocolate bar on top of a fence post. She walked on. Rain clouds were threatening now, rushing in like a slow stampede, and she was surprised at how they made her heart start to race and her breath come up short. She picked up her pace, but the feeling of something looming, something pressing too close, stayed with her. The friend of the squirrel, she thought. This was what he'd always been good for. This was what he'd always been best at. Of the two of them, she was the energy. He was the solidity. A combination that made the world safe for them both as they sailed out into it together. It had its drawbacks. He could recede into depression. She could spiral off into anxiety. But her energy could pull him out of his reticence and his calm could anchor her so that she could take the risk, throw the rock at the moon, maybe even hit it. She sped on, unsure why she was nearly running now, holding up an arm to shield herself from the first drops of rain. The new wet somehow only made the world more grey, muddying it together in streaks of ash, not washing it away as she thought it would. The rain intensified, soaking her, until she finally had to flee under a bus shelter to wait it out. Her heart pounded alarmingly, her breath coming in little locomotives of steam. No one else had taken refuge in the shelter, and the streets looked empty again the food bank queue left behind to fend for itself. She was alone, and the world might flood now for all she knew, and this bus shelter would be her desert island, until the tides rose and swept her away. And she wished for it. If she'd been able to pray, she would have closed her eyes and asked for it. She heard running footsteps, and the boy dashed through the curtain of rain to join her there. He looked up in surprise, as if astonished to see her. They stood for a moment, staring at each other, equally wide-eyed. She saw that in one hand he held the chocolate bar, already half-eaten. She looked at his other hand. The one that had always gripped something was gripping it still. He saw her looking and... After taking another bite of the chocolate, he silently raised the gripping hand and opened it. Resting on his palm was a toy car. It was missing a wheel and was much played with in other respects, too. It was of a style possibly too young for him, or maybe too old, and she seemed to understand, though he said nothing, 
that it was more than just a toy, that there was a history to it, something retrieved from the world just past, a rock on which to build the world to come. But as the rain poured down, what she kept seeing was the redness of it, shiny from the boy's grip, washed even cleaner by the current squall, the redness was like a single poppy blooming on a defeated battlefield. It was a red that pulsed there in his hand, the grey of the world pushed back for just those few centimetres to allow a violent, living red within. The weeping took her then, so much so that after a moment she had to crouch down, one hand on the bus shelter bench to keep her balance. But even with her eyes closed, she could still see the red. She pressed its painful brightness to her, clutched at it like a life raft. The boy remained silent. He just watched and waited, eating his chocolate. After the End by Patrick Ness was read by Lindsay Duncan. The producer was Kirstine Cameron.